Overthinking It Podcast, episode 32. It's episode 32 of the Overthinking It Podcast. Thank you for downloading or streaming, live streaming. I used to have a problem with live streaming, but I talked to a urologist. He cleaned, he cleaned it right up. Yo! It Sing. is I, Matthew Rather. <laughs> Let's go around quickly and introduce the panel. Uh, panel question tonight, most remarkable Grammy moment. Could be good, could be bad. Uh, mine is the craptacular duet with uh, Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus. Taylor Swift, not so much a singer as a precision moaner. Uh, and Miley Cyrus just like it's like Baudrillard, Jean Baudrillard's uh, like third order simulacrum of <laughs> of you know the glory that was uh, of the glory that was Britney Spears circa fourth quarter 1998, first quarter 1999. Anyway, uh, we are joined by Mark Lee, Grammy moment. I can only speak to like the 15 minutes that I actually saw. So I'm just going to go with David Grohl's head bouncing up and down left and right as Foo Fighters played with Paul McCartney's uh, in the rendition of I Saw Her Standing There. It's pretty great. Cool. Cool. Uh, Mr. Lee, we are joined by Mr. Peter Fenzel. Grammy moment. Hey, how's it going? Uh, I'm I'm all right. I mean, it's a little late. We're recording this at like quarter to midnight <laughs> instead of like eight, like we usually do, because we all yes. watch the Grammys. So you know, we could be a little loopy. Oh sure, I'll give you my favorite moment right it's now. It's gonna be a crazy podcast. I can feel it. Turn on the vocoders, man. It's gonna be nuts. My favorite Grammy moment would have to be when journeyman stage screen and small screen actor Gary Sinise introduced uh, Alan Thicke's son. And superstar rapper Lil Wayne. The transition, it defied my ability to force a segue. And I can force a segue through more places than Paul Bart Mall Cop. You know what I'm saying? Kapow! I'm putting my voice through auto-tune. Uh, yes. For real? Um, yeah, let's see if it works. <laughs> <laughs> Do that <Wow>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, say some classics. I, right. I'm. Uh, I actually don't even know what key it's auto tuning to. I just. Uh, I go through GarageBand before I go into Skype, and so I can. Uh, I actually can turn on the pitch correction. Um. I'm. I'm going to take issue with you there, Pete, and say that Gary Sinise is not a journeyman actor. He is. You know. I mean. He's. He's a character actor. He's sort of a lesser character actor in film. But mm. on stage as a member of the Steppenwolf Theater Company and on Broadway, he's, you know, he is a master theater actor. That's true. That's true. I, it is. I mean, certainly his, his success on CSI New York is not quite uh, as, as impressive as his success with John Malkovich and Joan Allen and all those people and Frank Galati over in Chicago. Um, so I, I'm prepared to call him a, a master actor, I suppose. Though I don't necessarily think he's a master of introducing rap artists. No. That he is but an apprentice, I think. It went, <laughs> uh... he learned something from Zoe Deschanel about like how to introduce acts at the Grammys. Yeah, no, my fifth and sixth grade elementary school deskmate, Zoe Deschanel, uh, she really, really got the crowd pumped. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, we had, a, we had a fight over me stealing her. Like, she had this colorful girl paper, and yeah. I, would, I would steal it a lot. You were uh, always having problems with the women's, Mr. Rath. <laughs> with the women's. Took you a long time to sort that out. <laughs> yeah, really. It totally, it totally did. All right. Uh, we are delaying. We should get to uh, Mr. Ryan Sheely. Yo, yo. I think my favorite was definitely the uh, the Swagger Like Us uh, featuring MIA and MIA's uh, maternity bikini dress thing. Uh, that was definitely my highlight of the evening and possibly the year and decade. That was, yeah, the bikini dress was, was epic, was it not? It was amazing. I mean, I've seen MIA live um, a, a number of times, and she definitely, you know, brought it and held her own with uh, with some very, you know, top tier rap performers in like Kanye, Ti, uh, uh, Lil Wayne, and uh, yeah, she looked like she was right in there with him. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was awesome. It was great to see it. It was cool to actually see the sample sung live and have the little snippet of uh, paper planes. I think it's well deserved uh, attention for her. Right. And hopefully, hopefully she'll uh, um, and she'll be uh, up on the Academy Awards in the next few weeks. So it's a There's big, some, big some, month for her. Someone on Twitter pointed out that Kate Beckinsale afterwards <laughs> was was really an underminer, where it was like, uh, well, she deserves credit just for getting through it. Where in fact she kicks some ass. Oh yeah, no, she kicked ass. She was dancing. She was, I mean, she more than got through it. You know, Katy Perry got through it. MIA triumphed. Like that's the difference there. <laughs> right. Uh, and I think we're joined uh, next to you by a first-time guest on the podcast on the panel, Mr. John Levin. Hey, uh, hey. thanks for having me on briefly. Um, two disappointing moments at the Grammys, uh, if I may. Um, First of all, uh, Rick Rubin seemed to be introduced, but didn't seem to come out. I don't know if that was expected, <laughs> but, but he was he was crazy for that one. <laughs> and uh, also, it seemed that briefly um, Stevie Wonder, a legend, was was under the influence of the auto tuner, which he doesn't really need. So <laughs> it seemed like a bit of a little sellout for a second. But maybe that wasn't I even just that. the auto tuner. That was like the auto tuner, but that was the tube down the throat. Kid Rock, I'm a cowboy baby, like gravelly voice machine. Oh, Wait, no, that, was the, that was like I've had my uh, voice box removed because of long, uh, you know cancer kind of uh, effects, right? Right. Hang on a second. That's, that's, like, that's not. Wait a minute. That's not Kid Rock's effect. <laughs> that's that's Jesus Park effect. Yeah. If anything, bring up Roger Troutman for Christ's sake. You feel like I do. Anyone? Anyone? California I'm just going to do that periodically. <laughs> Let's have that be the rest of the podcast. It's not coming over yet. Okay, we're stopping. Hey, so what did you guys think of the... Of the end of the show. I mean, it was... What did you guys think of the award for best album? Well, I think that someone actually the, the the corporate. I'm gonna read a Twitter. I, I'm a little Twitter obsessed because we were on Twitter all night live twittering the thing. But this is from Wonderwall, which is the MSN uh, corporate horror MSN celebrity blog. But um, you know, they actually hit it on here, uh, which was in a shocking twist. The final Grammy of the night goes to some old rock veterans whom, whose latest album no one under 40 has ever heard of. 
Yeah, it's sort of like the British Empire giving the prize for best country to the colony of Ceylon in like 1962. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know you think that they're the best, but maybe it's time for you to recognize that perhaps you should open your perspective just a little bit. To be fair, Pete, MIA would have been well pleased with that. <laughs> the Orient, yes, in fact, yes. Or um, being Sri Lankan. Are the Grammys? I'm going to expose my uh, ignorance here. Okay. Oh, I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are the Grammys voted on by the people who have won Grammys in the past the way the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences works? Wait, what? In the Oscars, the only people who win Oscars get to vote? Yeah, if you win. Oh, no, sorry, if you're nominated. If you're nominated, you are then invited to become a member of the Academy. Uh, at oh. least that's the norm. That's the convention. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Like when Michelle Williams was nominated for Brokeback Mountain, she mm -hmm. uh, was not invited to join the Academy. The reason being Dawson's Creek, uh, mm. essentially. And so, and it was seen. It was reported in the celebrity press and the entertainment press as this big snub. But like normally, if you're nominated for an Academy Award, hard on the heels of the <laughs> ceremony, you're invited to join. The, uh, to join the Academy, and then you vote on the final round of the Academy Awards, though only the particular crafts people associated with one craft vote on the first round, vote for the nomination. So the cinematographers vote for the five films nominated, the composers vote for the five uh, composers nominated, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, so so that really means 3-6 Mafia can vote. Yes, exactly. Three Six Mafia is probably now, you know, voting to narrow. They actually, it's probably down to Three Six Mafia that uh, Slumdog Millionaire is up for uh, two songs, and the boss can't even get <laughs> right. So they blackballed the boss, basically. <laughs> right, exactly. Is there any basis for real thinking that Three Six Mafia has a feud with Bruce Springsteen, or is this just this is just sort of arbitrary speculation? Because if there is basis, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, they made an album called "You Know uh, Screw You Asbury Park," and it just talks a lot about how much they hate the struggles of everyday people in New Jersey in the seventies and eighties. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. The 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 working. Yeah. No, it's harder out here for a pimp than it is for the white working class. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I, you know, I was also born in the USA, but ah. you write a song about me, <laughs> right. so maybe I don't have to buy your album, you silly person. <laughs> that's the whole name of their whole album. They have a whole album that's just called that, down to you, silly person. So Pitchfork's uh, predictably snarky Twitter is uh, good, uh, after the album debacle, is goodbye, cruel world, blam. Yeah, I don't know if that's the right response. I mean, suicide is never the answer. Although for Pitchfork, no, I shouldn't be mean. I shouldn't. <laughs> well, they, Pitchfork is fine. They actually, I think it was either Pitchfork or Stereo Gum was calling for the death of Katy Perry, I think, earlier on in the... Uh, really? In, Why? Okay, Are they, no, they gay bashing? Was that like, that is that a hate crime? That's a hate crime. <laughs> that's you one know, of the things that crime. I actually saw there, and that, I thought that was a perfectly entertaining performance with plenty of great visuals. And I actually appreciated the fact that the dance was a lot of just Carrie, Katy Perry just bopping around enthusiastically. It's like, that's great. That's energy. Nothing mm -hmm. too fancy. You don't need yeah. choreographed. You just need to jump around and have a, a very low-cut dress. No. America. Oh, but not everybody can just stand there and have a fan blow in their face like Robert Plant can. <laughs> <laughs> More fan. I've got a More fever. Fan.
No, no, no. I actually, I really have a fever. My temperature is hot. I'm overheating. Can you please n blow the fan? It's not a metaphorical fever for cowbell. I actually have a fever. So, wait, so was Rihanna supposed to perform tonight and then they cut her because she was involved in that arrest of the dude, of Chris Brown? And where was or, Beyonce? Yeah, I don't know. Where was Beyonce? Oh, my God. Beyonce was actually, she was at my house, unfortunately. I, I was going to tell you guys the reason that I didn't tune in the first two hours of the Grammys was I was showing Beyonce how to play Beautiful Joe on GameCube. It's one of the uh -huh. classics. You know, we were, we were going through the various VFX modes, and she was like, Oh, Pete, I don't know how to use slow motion. I was like, Sorry, Beyonce. I'll play it for you for a little bit. You know, you go have yourself a diet soda. Oh, I played Belinky. Belinky is not on tonight because he's, uh, I played his Xbox 360 for the first time. You just made me think of that. Oh, yeah. Is zombie game? Zombies? No, I didn't kill some zombies, though. I, I he did. doesn't like you, then. I gotta tell you, I, he, he's just not that into you. I, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't play zombies with you, he's not that into you. <laughs> I, uh, uh, he's just not that into you. Number one movie in America this last weekend. Hey, John saw it. <laughs> Wait, did, you, did you really, John? What was it like? Um. What's the, first, let, me, let me ask this. It's a self-help book. What's the plot? <laughs> it's set in Baltimore. And Ooh, in just Baltimore. like The Wire. Wait, yeah. really? It's exactly like The Wire. <laughs> if, if, he keep, if a homosexual man keeps stealing your drugs and shooting your employees, dot, 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 he's just not that into you. He's just not. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Oh, man. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> you have to believe that one, Matt. If he won't call you back, it's because he keeps saying, stay off the phone. <laughs> yes, if, if, you're, if that guy won't call you, it's probably because there's a federal wiretap on his phone. And he needs to contact you directly or he's going to be arrested for drug trafficking. Here's what, here's, what, here's what it is. If the police are not wiretapping your phone... McNulty you is just redhead. not that into you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Yes. You the might be are... uh yeah, no, you might be a high rise drug lord. If... Mm -hmm. No, yeah. off topic. Back to the back to the topic. He's just not that into the Grammys. Man, I... those people were robbed, weren't they? Oh <laughs> hey. See, that's Paul Bart. He's maneuvering down that, that narrow trench. It's like it's not it's it's I used to bullseye womp rats back in my speeder back home. It's not that hard. You just just go down the trench. Um, yeah, so how come none of the albums that people actually liked or bought this year won the Grammy? We should <laughs> always we should always record the podcast at midnight. <laughs> Bill punch, punchy. Um, yeah, uh, highlights, lowlights of the performances. Let's do the performances. Oh, I mean, I liked the uh, the the one with the the Jimmy Fox and the Four Tops or the Four Top. Um, that one was really good. Jamie Foxx and, and singing with the Motown guys. Yeah, that was cool. I really enjoyed that. I thought that that was really solid, and they showed a lot of showmanship, all of them, and a lot of respect for the source material. Um, <laughs> so I enjoyed that. I feel like no one's going to have a counter-argument being like, no, that was shitty. I hate vocal performances from the <laughs> 70s. <laughs> it's like, yeah, hmm. it's pretty much what you see is what you get, but there it is, you know? And he's won an Oscar, so he's more artistic than Radiohead. Uh, USC <laughs> Fighting Trojans Marching Band? <laughs> the most artistic 
musical group in the history of humanity. Yeah, that was great. Now, I wanted to clarify something because I think we got it mixed up on the Twitter. Yeah, clearly she hasn't heard of Animal Collective. <laughs> or, or the Royal Knights of the Order of Oingo Boingo. <laughs> <laughs> what about, um, wait, who is Gwyneth Paltrow sleeping with? She sleeps with Chris Coldplay, Martin. not with Ray. All, all of them. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> And Oasis. Now, is Coldplay, um, is her husband's band less, wait, are they married or are they just stupid and parents, proud parents of Apple? No, I think they're married. Okay. Is her well, husband, like is her husband's band less artistic than Radiohead? Apparently. I mean, well, no, I mean, I think we all can agree that Coldplay <laughs> is less artistic than Radiohead. But Oh, no, didn't you see they were wearing this awesome, crazy Sgt. Pepper's throwback uniform? They're, That's they're a lighter right? band, you know? They're not a, they're not a heavy band. Uh, they're less into music than, you know, other things. They're just not that into music. Like, like, <laughs> like selling, selling iPods, you mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And uh, fashion. I mean, that was, I thought that was the launch of their fashion line. Mm-hmm. The neon Sergeant so, yeah, Pepper's so, um, so, so, so for somebody who knows this better than I, uh, can you give me some quick tips on how to distinguish Radiohead from Coldplay? Like how to tell them apart? Because I, I always get them confused. Not because of the quality of their music, just because I have these two words that are associated with the names of bands. And for the life of me, I can't associate each one with the correct one whenever it comes time to do so. I'm throwing the challenge out there, guys. I'm, throwing, I'm, I'm not, you know, this doesn't require an elaborate... If the, music, if the music is heavily syncopated, it's likely to be Radiohead. Okay, so Coldplay keeps it on the one. Very straightforward. Four on the, four on the floor. Um, you know, they, they don't really mix it up too much. If you hear instruments that might not be, that might be made with a, a synthesizer rather than a live instrument, it's probably Radiohead. Um, okay. Or a time signature that is that is not four four, as I said before. Is there anything um, actually active about Coldplay that characterizes them, or are they just not Radiohead? They're just like they're like Radiohead, but lacking all the creative elements that make. Radiohead I don't think they're that that like much like Radiohead. <laughs> I mean, I think they're more like. Oh, I think actually when you mentioned Oasis, I say like if it sounds like Oasis but the voice is higher, it's probably uh, it's probably Coldplay. I mean, I don't. And the songwriting like, and the songwriting is not. Just not quite as good as anything. As, yeah. <laughs> what? As Oasis? Oasis has has a couple of good songs. I agree. Oh, I wasn't dissing Oasis. I was just trying to keep this in Coldplay. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't diss Oasis. They'll get drunk and come in and, and break your mailbox. Those people are crazy. Those Gallagher boys. They have nothing to do now other than petty vandalism, right? Don't they enjoy that sort of thing? Or am I just making that up? <laughs> or am I confusing them with the Gallagher guy who hit the watermelons with a hammer? <laughs> He's the most artistic artist in the history of artistry. He's a hell of a lot more artistic than than Radiohead. Radiohead? Let let me see Radiohead try to make a 15-year stand-up comedy career out of like breaking a whole bunch of fruit all over people's faces. I hope they have Gallagher on maybe two albums, maybe two albums. I hope hope they have like Gallagher on next year as like the uh, the percussion section for like. Chris Brown featuring no, Chris Brown can't make Chris Brown jokes. Wrong artist to think of. Somebody featuring somebody else. Why? Because he'd be beating someone with a hammer. <laughs> yeah, that was the wrong. I, I wasn't trying to make that reference, and, and it was just like the first musical artist. And that's like the irony is that like of all these musical artists that were celebrated, like Chris Brown is the musical artist who's most on my mind tonight. So um, um, it's really never, it's really never about the music. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was that like a domestic violence thing or something? I we shouldn't talk about it. It's probably bad. Why? What do you mean? Why is it bad? Because domestic violence is bad. Is that what you're saying? That that's a are controversial. You, are, you, are you disagreeing? Are you saying domestic yeah, we violence is? About, I think you're endorsing domestic violence. I think you're. Uh, am I endorsing domestic violence by okay. saying that? that... Okay, that, that's fine. <laughs> you know what? Let's take back the night. <laughs> We're gonna fight over the night now. Like we want to take it back. No, we want to take it back. We want to take it back. No, 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 no. I mean, it's obviously a story, right? And it's more. I mean, we're trying to forget the fact that the Grammy for best album went to Robert Plant. I mean, it's poor Robert Plant. He didn't deserve to win that Grammy. He deserves better than to win that Grammy because that Grammy is a black mark on his career that he hardly deserves. Because now people are going to remember that Grammy only because of the people who didn't win it rather than because like, of the fact that What was his that acceptance night. speech? Like we, you know, back in the day we would have called what I'm doing now in the show selling out. Yes, it was a great first line where he's like, yeah, I didn't have any respect for you guys when I was culturally relevant. But now that I'm nice and settled down, I'll take the statue and put it next to my Yadro. (laughs) (laughs) Yadro, by the way, is a Belgian sculptor of uh, of small sculptures. A lot of them are women and daughters. They're all ceramic and pretty. And I'm sure that Robert Plant probably has one in his house. So So while while you guys were talking about Coldplay and Radiohead, I Googled, you might be a hipster if... Oh, you want to you want to hear some of these? No. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or is that is that already the, like it, like you might be sure if you don't want to hear some things that might make they're, you a hipster? Uh, yeah, they're not. They're actually not that great. They're not that clever. Uh, go, we'll read the bad ones. Let's see how bad okay. they get. Uh, I guess so. Uh, if you ha- these are from utahraves.com, or the shortened mm-hmm. URL is utrave.org. Uh, if you're showing more ass crack than a refrigerator repairman, you might be a hipster. Is that really characteristic of hipsters? Do if they show you have a, a lumberjack <laughs> beard, but the closest bunch of trees is in McCarran Park... Uh, you might be a hipster. If wow. you have to show off your tattoos and piercings for your day job at the tattoo and pers- piercing shop, you might be a hipster. Woo. Yeah. Ask the crickets. If you're wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt, you might be... Englewood. Englewood always up to no good. <laughs> San Jose, California. Hey, since, <laughs> since I saw so little of the, of the broadcast, can I ask to talk about something that I actually saw and wish I didn't? Namely, this TV wonder Jonas Brothers abomination. Oh, yeah. We, we should get to that. Quadred? I don't know what the hell you call it. It was bad, whatever it was. Unless someone wants to rise up and defend it. No, go, Anyone? go, go. Uh, I mean, Stevie was good. So when he sang that, that verse of the Jonas Brothers song, it was a little, it was kind of a dark day. It was just a mess. I mean, for lack of a better word. Did you see it the whole way through? I feel like it started a little better and really, like, degenerated. Like, it got more disorganized it as it went through. It was just teetering and tottering. So the, my take on the on, on the first half of it was that the horns just sounded really out of place on a Jonas mm-hmm. Brothers song. Jonas Brothers and horn section, uh, not so much doing it. Right. And then, then once they launched into Superstition and one of those, those awful children... Uh, 
started singing and this voice definitely cracked. He just, just didn't land it at all. I was like, Very stitches. And then it just wasn't happening. And then uh what's this one of the, the, the lead singer boy bopping all around the stage, giving shout outs to Stevie. It was a mess. I I I, I don't know what else to say. Mm. I mourn for America. That this is what we had to see. More performances, more live performances. <laughs> Anything else? What was what was craptacular? Did you does everyone else hate Taylor Swift as much as I do? I, I I don't hate her. I'm sure she's a very nice, you know, girl and she certainly can, you know, kind of chant out those you know, notes on something resembling a pitch. But the the Hey how yeah. about you brief me and the kids at home as to who Taylor Swift is? Because I don't have a clue. I've heard that name before, but I, I thought I think it makes me think of some American Idol contestant who's like an older dude. But that's a different dude, right? Oh, that's, that's Taylor, Taylor Hicks, Hicks right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, yeah, no, that's the the harmonica so playing Hicks, Taylor Swift guy. Not the same person. It's not like some sort of elaborate cross-dressing gag, like with. Uh, <laughs> Like with like like Martin and Shanene, where like he dresses up like a woman in order to have an alternative singing career. Um, Is Martin the like the Ur Tyler Perry? No, no, God, no, 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 no. He's not. Martin isn't the Ur anything. <laughs> He's like the marginally older of the two bad boys, I suppose. But um, I don't think Martin was really the primary creative force behind his own show. I don't think. I mean, he was a big in it, obviously, but he had writers and supporters and stuff. And Tyler Perry has his whole own production company, right? And yeah, like, he's a. I guess he's a. He owns the whole thing, top to bottom. He's the producer. He's the writer in a lot of cases. He's the director. He's very often the star as several roles, yeah. several in drag. Taylor Allison Swift is a 19-year-old American country pop singer-songwriter. In 2006, she re- uh, released her debut single, Tim McGraw, which peaked at number six on the Billboard country charts. Uh, you said later... a song about another country singer? <laughs> it's the level... <laughs> Talk about Baudrillard, the third it, order it, of Simulacra. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, do they have beef? Is it, is it, they... Is it, yeah, do they have a beef? Is it a Country track? singers have lots of beef. They love beef. <laughs> uh, she, um, the song tells of Taylor's remembrance of a summer of love, and how an unnamed country, uh, how an unnamed song by country music artist Tim McGraw uh, brings back memories of that love for her. So Tim McGraw, I guess we would have to call this metonymy. Mm. Right, because it's a substitution of Tim McGraw for whoever mm. the the mystery boy was. So it's a substitution by association. Yeah, uh, but it's contiguous because they're they're associated with one another in some way. Right. So it's exactly. not metaphor; it's autonomy. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Right. Um, rather than being rather than being an implied comparison yeah. between two things, as you yeah. as a metaphor usually is. Uh, it's no, it's substitution by association, by close association. So, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and synecdoche, just to fill out the you know English rhetorical tropes for all of y'all, is a substitution of the part for the whole. So when yeah. we talk about a writer's hand, uh, meaning his sort of uh, what uh, hearing his voice in something, you know, I can definitely see a, uh, such and such a writer's hand in this. It's a substitution of the part for the whole. You know. Synecdoche is sort of to metonymy as simile is to metaphor. It's like a subset that gets its own category in your in your uh, textbook. 
So. Well, sort of, right? I guess. I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess in that in that specific relationship that you uh, that you describe, but simile and metaphor are alike in that they're both implied comparisons. Well, one is an implied comparison, one is an explicit comparison. Whereas, it's a little known fact that the uh, working draft for Tel- uh, for Taylor Swift, Tim McGraw, was originally called R. Kelly. I don't mean to be rude, Matt. I'm sorry. I just felt like the right moment. Sometimes you got to follow your making music. I know yeah, Taylor hey, Swift. So does Taylor It's Hicks. a country ballad of getting peed on by R. Kelly. <laughs> Hey, YouTube, you should allow Rather to tell everyone about apostrophe. <laughs> when you know what? Rather would be doing apostrophe if he were to do that, actually. <laughs> Kapow! Zam! Figure yeah. of speech. There's so many levels. It's like this is a third-order simulacrum of a podcast. I don't know whether that's a, a linguistic trope or a Dungeons & Dragons character. <laughs> and... <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, so the Grammys, I don't know. I found it really difficult to confront the possibility of actually watching the Grammys earlier this evening. Yeah, music, (laughs) is this the final nail in the coffin? Music industry, still relevant? Not at all relevant? I mean, I would would be surprised if the ratings on the Grammys were anything above ridiculously low. Um, I mean, do people, would people, do people even know what was on? You hear that? Does it make you more or less likely to watch that channel versus like a two hour long ShamWow commercial? You know, like, I mean, I would rather watch the ShamWow guy for like the hour and a half that I just watched the Grammys for than the Grammys. Um, and it's not that the Grammys are hard to watch or bad to watch. It's like the specific association that they have with the recording industry and just like all the history. It's like, uh, they give the, and like, I feel like with the Oscars, there's at least the, even when you're giving Oscars, to like American Beauty to be the best movie, there's at least the pretension, or at least there's the sincere mission to try to find at least kind of the best thing to give the award to. But the Grammys, are, the music industry is so much different than the movie industry, and the, the standards for quality are so much more dispersed, and, and, and the relationship between audience and, uh, and, and, and sort of critics is much more you know, shattered and apart, and it's just, it's so hard to believe that these awards really represent anything, or are authoritative. Like, is a Grammy really authoritative, is the question. Can you really think, okay, even if an Oscar doesn't go to the right movie, when you say that the movie won an Oscar, it means something. You know, if you're saying, like, oh, man, that movie, that, that album won a Grammy, and it's like, well... Well, isn't this a function, a lot of it, of category bloat? That is, there's so many Grammys given out that they become less meaningful because they're not scarce, you know? I would say it's less category bloat in the Grammys and more category bloat in the industry, though it's not bloat. It's diversification. I mean, the Oscars have the benefit of the fact that the studios still make most of the movies that matter, mm-hmm. you know? And in, in the Grammys, I don't, I don't venture to say that most of the music that matters that's made in the country in any given year isn't made by record companies. Well, yeah, the you know? movies – well, sure. That is – it's easier for music that is truly independently produced – to come to the attention of a lot of people than it is for a movie that's truly independently produced to come to the attention of a lot of people. Right, and, and even those different albums, the different um, labels have such different aesthetics that it's very hard to compare the, the, them across one another. Right, I was going to say this, that, that the, the, all the films nominated for Oscars are more like each other, have more in common than the yeah. set of songs and albums nominated for Grammys have in common. 
Yeah, like well, I brought this up. Yeah, sorry, go, go Shelly. Well, I, I was gonna say, like, if anything, the Oscars have almost the opposite of, uh, you know, more and more of an anti-populist bias, right? You know, in some ways, like the ideal awards show would be somewhere between the two, whereas, like, you know, the Oscars are more and more of these prestige pictures that not that many people have seen, and things like, you know, Dark Knight or Wally, which are certainly artistically worthy, like at least of being possibly being nominated in some major categories. Uh, are not nominated, then with, uh, you know, in the Grammys, you only have very few artistically relevant uh, 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 pieces, uh, songs or uh, albums nominated, and mostly uh, a lot of a lot of filler. So I, I feel like there's a middle, a third way somewhere, but I, I don't really know. I'll say this you know, too, the pace of innovation in music is a lot higher than the pace of innovation in film. Well, I mean, is that is to say, in mainstream film, in mainstream American studio fare. Well, there's much more economy of scale. I mean, like the way just of how you produce a a, a good piece of music, and you know the type of technology that it takes. Uh, I think is still markedly different than what it takes to make what is recognizable as a as a good you know high production value film. That is, um, you know, with with Pro Tools on your computer. Um, or even, you know, GarageBand in some cases, you can, you know, uh, start to approach certain certain standards, whereas I think it would be hard with a, uh, without a certain amount of expensive equipment to make a really nice-looking film. I don't know. I've never, I've tried less, but that's just my impression. Excuse me. Uh, with, on that note, I want to thank everybody. I think I need to peace out for the evening, but uh, appreciate the uh, opportunity. All right. Any well, last, John, it was a brilliant moment when you joined us. We miss you very terribly. What, what, what did you say, Lee? I was just asking of John if he had any last thoughts on music, life, art, theater. If John doesn't have any last thoughts to share with you, he's just not that into your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so no, loose, no loose talk, no second thoughts, and keep podcasting. <laughs> awesome. All right. All right. See you later, man. Living out. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, John. Um, Here, I have some figures for you. Here's some figures for you right now. Okay. Uh, at, through, like, this is an article that came out uh, only three hours ago. Uh, the album, the album by uh, Robert Plant uh, that won the Grammy, has sold 1.2 million copies. Um, Slumdog Millionaire has grossed $71 million in the United States. So even Slumdog Millionaire, which is thought to be a somewhat independent kind of film, one that's not really mainstream, one that is a prestige picture, um, if you do the math, has made somewhere probably between like five or six times as much money as the number one Grammy-winning song. Um, now, of course, if you look at the other Grammy nominees, the gap is pretty Wait, huge. Is that, but even, is that an, uh, was that a money figure, Peter? Was that a number yeah, that was of a copies money figure. figure? If you want to, if you want to divide it um, by like sales, well, I was, I was, I was doing is I was multiplying the Robert Plant album, which is 1.2 million copies. And if it's sound scan, that means if it's a double album, they cut it in half, right? Uh, or they um, they double it. But anyway, that would probably calculate to a, a ceiling of about 25 million dollars in sales. Okay. Right. Um, whereas Slumdog Millionaire has 71 million in sales just domestic, 75 if you bring in uh, international. So just in terms of like the money that comes in the door, it's got three times as much, right? And this is like a, a, a fairly you know, on the edge Oscar, you know, Oscar contender versus you know the the Grammy winner. 
Um, so it's on the bubble, as it were. And then if you factor in the fact that an album can sometimes cost twice as much as a movie ticket or starts out costing twice as much on average than a movie ticket and can go up from there, right. then you have to factor that down even farther so that you might be talking about five or six times more. Um, and I mean, it gives you, sort of gives you an, an, an idea of like the relative popularity of things that we're talking about. Now, I'm sure that the sales figures for like the Carter Three are much more bullish, um, and I'm looking those up right now. But you guys can talk about something else. Well, um, Carter Three did uh, did a million in the first week. Um, yeah, 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 I don't yeah. know. I don't know what it's uh, looking at right now. It's done since. Let's see sales. How many? That was the sale figures. Well, it's it yeah. sold 2.4 million copies. So actually, really not that many for for the big. I mean, the record sales are way down from the heydays of of our youth. It's I the mean, Napsters. Look, it's the Napsters yeah. and the BitTorrents and the LimeWires and the ringtones and the, all that other stuff. Well, and right, like all the that, other, like yeah, I'll bet the ringtone industry has been taken off while yeah. the album uh, industry is tanking. Oh, I mean, I definitely have a Robert Plant, uh, Allison Krauss ringtone, and it's it's uh, amazing. <laughs> Every time you give me a call, that shit blows the fuck up. Oh, sorry, yeah, I just want to face. It's great. I have a, yeah, but, yeah. yeah I, I I made one, but I pirated it. But yeah, I mean, like it is interesting to think that even the most popular album nominated for best album at the grammys is owned by fewer people than a movie ticket to the least popular movie nominated for best picture in the oscars probably maybe the visitor thing probably or the reader or whatever the thing is it probably brings that down a little bit but um but you know the we're talking about a different order of not of magnitude but relatively close and probably headed in that direction they're just less popular Uh, pop music just doesn't have as much penetration as uh as it used to. Well, it's more fra- again. It's more fragmented. Yeah, right. I mean, it's 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 a function of how many thousands and thousands of albums are released every year, but uh, how many you know films are released every year. Well, and actually, for example, uh, Hollywood had this problem in two thousand seven when there were something like four hundred, four hundred twenty five, four hundred fifty movies released, and it was just the market was saturated and there was too much, and it was not a good box office year. Uh, you know, paradox of choice, etc. And it's been a much better box office year this year. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, 2008. I mean, 2008. This Oscar year, um, partly because of the success of films like Iron Man and The Dark Knight, which are, you know, it's a not, it's an anomaly when a tentpole like that hits. I guess always uh, when they when they turn out to be so good. I mean, the popcorn movies turned out to be really good this year, uh, but yeah. partly also because all the studios cut back on their uh, slates uh, closed their specialty divisions, a lot of them, and there are just fewer films, large studio films in the marketplace. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think it's time for the authoritative award-giving power that currently belongs to the recording industry proper and the people that make records, like make CDs, to pass? Like, If there were an iTunes awards, do you think it would be more relevant than the Grammys. I think that the, uh, I mean, iTunes is the largest music retailer in America, and I think that their top 10 list is probably one of the more relevant measures of the state of uh, popular music at any given time. Yeah, I mean, let's put that out right now. Let's challenge them because you guys probably, you know, those Apple folks, you know, they probably have the opportunity to put together a kind of multimedia land, sea, air uh, performative experience with all these musicians, which it would probably be less traditional, but 
could really get people engaged uh, in a way that the Grammys are really failing right now. And I think part of it is that the people who are giving these awards are not the right people to give them anymore. Just, I mean, they're just not the people buying the music. They're not the people selling the music. They're not the people making the music. Like, who are they? You know, they're like that random white guy who was talking about uh, the Obama stuff in the middle of the Grammys for no reason. It's, uh, it's oh, you know, yeah, let's whatever. talk about that guy, whoever he was, the president of the Academy or whatever. whatever it always hell. is funny when the president of the Academy comes out, whatever Academy it is, even if it's like Hogwarts. He's like, oh, I'm the president of the Academy. You should all listen to me for a little while. I'll explain to you what we do. But yeah, no, he was, he was talking about what the good work. Oh, he's talking about how he wanted to have uh, Secretary of the Arts in the cabinet, right? Which is something that if you read like arts blogs, like I read a lot of theater blogs, it's something that's going around right now. That's a meme that's in the yeah. memosphere. Uh, I mean, I used to work in theater advocacy and like nonprofit regional theater advocacy and lobbying and things like that. Um, and I'll tell you, I mean, it would be good for those people. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it would be the kind of thing where the thing with the arts is that they get a lot of play when things are good because the people do want it. You know, like people in the communities are happy when they have arts resources made available to them. But when things get bad, they get cut really severely because people don't want to spend money on it that they could spend on other things. You know what I mean? So um, it's it's tough. It's always like they get in there and they try to lobby, but they're always at a disadvantage against people who are more entrenched or have more centers of gravity. But it would be a tough thing to establish because who would you put in that position? You know, like because the different arts, they have a they are not always happy with each other or friendly with each other when they're lobbying their stuff. I mean, yeah, they, they try are, to be. They but... are sort of solitudes that protect and border and greet one another, to quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, at, who in Washington wants to sit there and listen to a bunch of people from ballet fight with a bunch of people from opera? You know, like, I feel like even politicians have better things to do with their time. You know? It, <laughs> <laughs> like, go eat some shrimp at some fancy fundraiser or something. Yeah, right, exactly. Like, get involved in sex scandals and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be good to have somebody in the country who is the go-to person, single point of contact for all these different groups, because arts lobbying it tends to happen on kind of a smaller level and kinds of to be spread out a little bit more, because a lot of these are smaller interests and stuff, and it would be good to have someone for them to talk to. Does it need to be a cabinet-level position? I mean, that's something for the politicians to figure out, obviously. If only there was some kind of, uh, like, like uh, nationwide... You know, collection of mo- collection of of money to endow the arts. <laughs> if only there yeah. were some sort of you know national endowment for the arts. Well, yeah, but that's just the pot of money, right? That would I mean, be a great idea. Yeah, but that's all. You know what? In the end, that's all these people want. That's all like the nonprofit arts world wants. You know, and you know what? It's not. I guess you heard about it in. Uh, I guess you heard about it from Grammy guy tonight. But it's not like. You know, the movie studios are out there agitating for a secretary of the arts because they have money and they don't want one. You know, yeah. it's your it's your nonprofit theaters. It's your ballet companies. It's your opera and, you know, university art gallery docent union and whatever these people who are uh, advocating for this kind of thing. But you know what? You know, I'll tell you, it's not just the money because they also have a sense of something close to jealousy for the way that the arts are treated in, say, European countries, where you ha- see a lot more of a sense of the arts being part of the institution of the country. You know, it, they want the respect. I mean, I think that that arts people are kind of really downcast by the way that the arts were very publicly disrespected by Bush during his presidency. Um, like who is that guy that he made poet laureate, which was kind of a slap in the face. Um, do you remember that Matt? Was it Billy Collins? 
I think it was just, he was like a light verse artist, right? He was like a comic guy, sort of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was kind of really embarrassing for everybody. Who Billy Collins is not like, everyone's cup of tea, but he is a, a poet. I mean, he does think about language. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Okay, okay. Yeah, but that, I think there was a lot of like feeling like they weren't being t- – they want respect as much as they want money, but of course money respect. If John were still here, he'd tell you that money, power, and respect uh, go hand in hand just like money, cash, and hose or money, hose, and power and that people have sung of all these things. Can we get a Venn diagram for that as well? <laughs> Actually, maybe, maybe we should work on that. Money, hose, power, respects. Uh, maybe I'll a flow chart would, chart would be better than a Venn diagram. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, I guess, I guess you first need money, and then with money comes hose. And with hose comes power? No, it doesn't make sense. Well, and with Scarface, no, no, first you get the money. Scarface, and then you get the power, and then you yeah. get the respect. And then the hose are kind of a, I don't know. They're ancillary. Yeah, they're ancillary. I think so. But then you can have different area codes that are, have arrows pointing into that one spot. <laughs> can we talk about – you know, it's funny to hear Pete refer earlier to Slumdog Millionaire as a, uh, an independent movie. I mean, I mean it's it a, is, right? It's a it? smaller uh-huh. film, but it was financed by um, uh, a couple of British production companies that then got participation from uh, Warner Independent Pictures – Right, oh, which okay. was so which was the specialty awesome. division, and that's how you know that's how a lot of even independent movies, even movies that are made outside of the studio system in America, are very often financed by uh, packaging a marketable, a globally marketable actor with them or some kind of element in the package, and then selling the foreign rights, um, mm. and then that that provides the capital needed to finance production of the movie. And then you, you know, and then you sell the the American distribution rights, and that's you know where you make your money, I guess. But um, it was, you know, it was financed by these British companies, Film Four and Cellador, uh, with Warner Independent Pictures, right? So it's, you know, it's being made by stu- by uh, there's an American film studio involved, um, and there's a huge pot of money involved, you know, right? Uh, Fifteen million dollars, I guess, not. Huge by the standard of Iron Man or The Dark Knight, but you know, huge by the standard of um, what I make, and <laughs> at least twice what you make in a given week. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, right. Exactly. It's it's you know two or three times the ad revenue from overthinkingit.com. But uh, <laughs> but you know this is this is what we have. That's kind of an independent or offbeat or quirky or whatever movie but independent music is just a totally different animal i mean the you know ryan turned me on to the mountain goats right which is a guy playing guitar and singing with uh into a casio tape recorder it was before he sold out and started like having like high production values yeah right (laughs) yeah i guess so um, I was I was going back to music and independent music. Um, you know, I've just been after uh, Pete's suggestion uh, that that iTunes be possibly one venue, iTunes sales, or some some aspect of iTunes be a platform for a new type of music awards. Um, the you know, if that were for 2008, uh, the person who would be winning the most iTunes would be Coldplay. Um, and oh, so, really? 
Yeah. Um, and so the, and uh, they are in four four, and then they use actual instruments, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Uh, it would be it would be Coldplay and and Katy Perry would be racking it in. Um, yeah. And so uh, raking I mean, it in. Was that an intentional pun? Um, I'll, I'll let I'll let the listeners decide. Um, <laughs> Vote on overthinking it. But like, interestingly, uh, you know, looking at Metacritic, which is a um, you know an aggregator of critical opinions, um, like as uh, the Raising Sand, the Robert Plant and uh, Alison Krauss album, uh, aggregated score is 87 out of 100, which is like substantially higher than Coldplay 72. And uh, you know, higher than higher than Lil Wayne's uh, 82, and higher than Radiohead's, or, or and just in like one below Radiohead's 88. So I feel like you know, even if um, this wasn't a you know a, a pop blockbuster, I don't I don't feel like it was a travesty. Like I'd be more upset if Coldplay won the Grammy than than this album that uh, you know certainly has universal critical acclaim. Hey, you know what's the, the, the funniest thing about all of this is that we've been talking about the Grammys off and on kind of for like some of us for hours and I don't think ever have any of us brought up the possibility of actually listening to the Robert Plant album. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not even a possibility. Like it's Here's like I why. could listen to it and find out whether or not it's good but like why would I do something like that? Oh, no, no, no. This is why. This is why. I didn't because I don't have a fan in my apartment. Um, well, I, I didn't bring it up because what, what we didn't bring up was the possibility of purchasing the uh, the Robert Plant album. <laughs> right, right, right. Of course, which is even I more. Planned, I plan to listen to it as soon oh. as we get off this podcast. <laughs> Now, uh, in between the the end of the of the show and the beginning of this, I did start, start a little bit on YouTube and pulled a cl- couple of clips down. It's perfectly respectable pop music. It's definitely a bit on the sleepy, slower side, <laughs> especially compared to say Robert Plant's earlier work. Um, but, you know, I, you know, obviously I have to listen to more to give it a shake of whether it's you know rises to best album of the year level or anything like that. Um, but it's not like, you know, uh, Noise Collective or the sound of trash cans being thrown down the stairs and that passing as, as recorded music. Now, that why isn't that kind of stuff on the Grammys? Like, that is, you know, artistically, <laughs> artistically progressive. Yeah, exactly. Like, best experimental Noise Collective. Yeah, that'll be the, the prestige album that the, 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 the studios all put out at the, end of the, at the end of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, what, what consumer goods does he recommend you buy in the lyrics to his songs? Like any any kind of like bills or shoes or like is there anything like a certain kind of handbag that he really likes or kind of alcohol? Because that's really why I listen to music. I got to get recommendations as to how to spend my dollar bills, y'all. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe he's good, but it sounds okay. It sounds pretty sleepy. That makes sense. I could go for some sleep right about now. That sounds kind of nice. My sleep started running out of batteries. Paul okay, we'll, we'll 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 change the subject. Maybe that'll <laughs> maybe that'll perk us up. Uh, <laughs> I feel my power returning. <laughs> Frisco. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Okay, we're you know back. what? If there were if, if there were a, a Grammy uh, category for best podcast theme song, I think we would totally win that hands down. 
<laughs> yeah, Jordan did a great job on it. Um, all right, so uh, Markley and I went to and Comic-Con. Sorry? And Santa Malowski. Don't forget Shana. Oh, yeah, and Shana Malowski, who's not on the podcast uh, tonight, though apparently she has invested in a Skype headset, so there may be a, a girl spoiling our sausage party uh, sometime soon. Oh, boy. Lame. Uh, and you know what else is lame? What? What's lame is that I, because I don't live in New York City or close to New York City, I didn't go to Comic-Con. I didn't see Comic-Con, and thus I would just be making snarky comments at your expense. No, that's okay. So think, you can totally do that. But no, if you guys – if you're going to bounce on out, go for it. All right. Good luck. Godspeed. Thank you, Maybe. Peter Fenzel. Donkaville, Osterbleef. See you later. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Pete. We Bye. went to uh, New York Comic Con, and uh, Mark and Shannon and I saw many things, including a preview of the Watchmen movie, a uh, preview of Terminator Salvation. And, you know, we wandered the show floor where really – it's mostly comic books. It's what it's what you'd expect. It's not like it's been taken over by uh, corporate interests, though the corporate interests are certainly well represented. There were uh, there was booth upon booth of you know independent artists, small publishers, uh, small retailers of comics, uh, different specialties and subgenres, uh, different national origins and things like this. And it was, you know, extremely, there was a very high nerd to square foot ratio uh, on the show floor. And that was interesting. I'm not really into comics so much. I was there for more of the general sort of mass pop culture stuff like the Watchmen movie or like Terminator. Um, though Mark did give me his copy of the Watchmen graphic novel, which I look forward to starting to read. Read it. Yeah, I know I will. Though I've heard it's a bad first graphic novel to start with on account of it. All so... the same. You're, you're an intelligent uh, uh, individual who can process multiple storylines at the same time. Synecdoche is the name of my penis. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so it's been the end of a long weekend. I'm just going to regurgitate some thoughts about Comic-Con. And you'll definitely be able to read more about it on the blog because it yep. feels like that's all I've been doing over the last... Uh, 24 hours or so is uh, writing my thoughts yeah, about Comic-Con. Yeah, you deserve, you deserve mad props, and I want to say it in a public forum, that you have been a writing machine about Comic-Con. I've been, like, you know, planning my one post that I intend to write about, <laughs> you know, some, like, uh, thought at, like, some, you know, ex extremely uselessly high level of abstraction that I would like to share with the world, but you have been... Hey, you already did your administrative post about how we were going to be posting about uh, Comic-Con. Yeah, so right, props, exactly. Props to that. Add some value there. <laughs> no, I appreciate, I appreciate it, rather, but uh, I'm really doing it for the, for the readers, for everyone who couldn't be there at Comic-Con. Uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, uh, in trying to tell people what Comic-Con is like, and this is my first Comic-Con as well, so this is all education to me. The thing that just, the phrase just kept keep coming to me was fire hose of popular culture. Just drinking from the fire hose. You're in the Javits Center. It's huge. Everywhere you go, there's pop culture. It's not like every day where we consume pop culture. This is the iPod. You got pop culture coming in your ears, but you're walking around the real world. You're getting on the subway. You're going to work, and then boom. Or you're listening to the radio while you're... Uh, doing the dishes. Um, it's not like going to the movies where for two hours you're in the theater, dark theater, pop culture, pop culture, pop culture, but you can go out to the bathroom, you can take a phone call, boom, you're out, you're back into the real world. Comic-Con is just saturation, left, right, 360 degrees, video games, 
comics, uh, anime, games. Just goes the list goes on and on. It was overwhelming. What were the, is, I mean, I, I, in some ways, the distinction there it seems to be that you know when you normally engage with pop culture out in the world, you have some control over what the inputs are, what it is that you're, what it is that you're hearing and seeing and listening to. So I imagine when you're there, it's sort of there's massive externalities. You're sort of you oh, can't. Oh, there, yeah. There's non-excludability, right? And so what are the what were the pieces of popular culture? I mean, I've heard plenty about the cool things and you know the things that motivated you to go in the first place. But what were the what were the Things that you engaged with that you normally wouldn't uh, uh, sort of take in that you were sort of surprised that you found enjoyable for both of you. Oh, I don't know if I can say the surprise that I found enjoyable. It's not the things. That's not that there were. I was assaulted by unenjoyable things. There was a lot of things that I just didn't understand. Um, <laughs> now, when you when you think about you know pop culture things being foisted upon you unwillingly um, or without your choice, I'm thinking specifically of the legions of costume wearing people. Um, cosplay, as it, as it were. Um, and I'm going to post a, a photo gallery of the costume competition on the site. It'll go up pretty soon, um, within the next couple of days, hopefully. And I was just kind of agog by the number of costumes that I didn't recognize. Um, I could kind of get a sense for what they were, you know, some superheroes I didn't recognize, anime, vaguely anime-ish things. Um, but, you know, seeing these things come past, I was like, what is that? What is that? Why, well, why this, is that? Yeah, this speaks to the f- kind of fragmentation that we were talking about before vis-a-vis the music industry. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure how popular a lot of the culture that we said, that we saw, uh, that we witnessed this weekend was. You know, Watchmen, obviously. <laughs> Terminator, these are, you know, movies for a mass audience. But, you know, some obscure Japanese uh, manga right that like i've never heard of that's probably not even translated and that you just have to like you know i don't know go on the internet and get the bootleg translation of i don't know like people get people get oddly into this stuff it becomes pop culture in that setting because there's the critical mass there that can all uh find their reference point and 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 collectively experience well that's true yeah i mean i i guess that's like you know it's the internet small is the new big right it's the absolutely Um, but yeah, no, it was, you know, it was, it was truly incredible. Are you, Mark, do you consider yourself like really a fanboy or like a serious fan of anything? You know, I, I thought about, I, going into the Terminator screening and going to this, I half jokingly, but half seriously considered myself to be a Terminator fanboy. And even more general to that, I, you know, we consider ourselves to be pretty nerdy guys, Right. And you think of like the, the so-called geek culture that's out there. Yeah. I think it's a safe thing to say that every writer on overthinking it to some degree belongs to that. Geek to, geekdom. To what? Geekdom. The geek culture. Speak for yourself, own boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Everyone except Sealy. Who, you know, was was captain of his football team and only listens to Tim McGraw. Um, <laughs> he's a member of Geek Time. So, but getting yeah. back to this, um, you know, because uh, to point out specific examples, I've worn a Terminator costume to my office. All right, I went uh, uh, Halloween once as Ash from Army of Darkness. I think I got some serious geek cred here, but I just couldn't hold a candle to the flame that is Comic Con, for lack of a better word. Here's the thing: this is what I was thinking the whole weekend. 
being a fan, as opposed to just a geek, right? As opposed to just someone who is into non-mainstream or sort of marginally less mainstream entertainment, being a fan of something involves assuming an identity, right? When I was a kid between uh, uh, second grade and eighth grade, when the Star Trek The Next Generation TV series was on the air, I was a Trekkie. Like, I was heavy into Star Trek The Next Generation. I watched all the episodes. I could quote it chapter and verse. I owned various paraphernalia, and I went to Star Trek conventions. Uh, I own the Klingon Dictionary. I think I still have it somewhere, actually, right? Is, and is that, there a like, Klingon, hey, hey, rather, is there a Klingon word for synecdoche? <laughs> no. Actually, the Klingons <laughs> are a lot more literal uh, and they're right. They don't actually. They're they're poetry, and there is Klingon poetry, and some of it actually features on uh, in the Star Trek, you know, television and film canon. Uh, it's a lot more really on the nose. It's not really all about figurative language and what Robert Frost uh, called ulteriority, the distance between uh, what a work of literature means and what it purports to mean. But I digress. I don't care for poetry that much, but I love hearing you talk about poetry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, some days I don't care for poetry a lot also. It just happens to be the thing I studied in school. So, you know, it's the only thing I'm qualified to talk at any, you know, sort of advanced level about. Anyway, uh, right, so I was a Trekkie, right? Like, and it was now, now I've really fallen away from it. I've, you know, probably lost a lot of the crap I had before. I haven't watched any of the other Star Treks. You know, it, it, it is not part of my identity, but for the time it was part of my identity. And I knew I was joining uh, a group of people and identifying myself with them. Uh, and we had as a group, you know, and like certain things became subservient to the group. And that's, that's what I think it means to be a fan of some, or like a really hardcore fan, a, a fanboy. You become sort of a partisan of a cause and, uh, you know, your will gets uh, sublimated to the greater will of the cause in, so in some way. And I'm just not willing – my personality has changed or I'm older or I, you know, uh, have uh, had a girlfriend or something. I don't know. I just can't relate to anything that way anymore. I buy that. Um, but I'm trying to think if – you know, we're, we're talking about fanboys in the context of Comic-Con and as if we're talking the way we're talking about it as if, is as if Comic-Con was just full of these mindless, uh, you know, fanboy slave drones. There were a number which, of zombies. There were a number of zombies. Now, I don't. It's the, that's the thing is that on the surface, when you see, um, you know, the crowds at, at Comic-Con. With the costumes and the paraphernalia and the level of enthusiasm that they bring, it's very easy, I think, on the surface to ascribe, you know, fanboydom and enslavist devotion to their various pop culture forms to them. But um, I suspect, um, without a whole lot of rationalization, but I suspect there's a lot more going on under the hood than, well, there's a lot more going on underneath the costume, as it were. Just because, you know, for example, the, the Jedi, the New York Jedi. Uh, Saber Collective or the, the New York Jedi team, um, even though they're decked out with the most hardcore Jedi costumes and probably have spent 
hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on their costumes and on their lightsabers. Um, are they all Star Wars fanboys? I don't. I wouldn't say that. You know, if if we're talking about the definition of fanboy as being um, that slavish devotion to uh, you know partisan partisanship of of the cause, that is the pop culture form. Take it or leave it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, good, but I, I, I don't think you you check your brain at the door entirely, but um, you know, I I think there is something to like being a fan means you're joining a group, you know, it's about group membership. I don't know, Sheila, anything? I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking through, but I, I don't have a lot of exposure to this type of uh, you know of subcultures. I mean, I I've, I'm drawn back to you know earlier we were talking about indie music and and uh you know in some ways i have much more experience with the sort of subculture or portion of the mainstream that 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 follows and is fans of indie music and what what i've noticed you know this the stark contrast between fanboy culture and you know the, the sort of um things like the star trek and star wars and and these sorts of things that develop that uh that attract the devoted sort of cosplay um, people, uh, from, uh, as, as opposed to you know, indie rock fans, is that indie rock fans are very fickle. Um, and, you know, one album goes too far towards the mainstream or too far, you know, not, you know, not pushing the envelope far enough, and, and already they're on to the next new thing. And, it's, it, you know, and, and so that, um, you know, it's interesting that you know, say what you will about the fanboys, you know, in some ways, they're—I don't want to say more sincere, but they definitely engage in a more, um, more long-term way with uh, with the, the piece of media than do many indie rock fans. So it's it's just an interesting hearing about this this culture uh, in juxtaposition to other sort of. Uh, cultures that surround uh, sure. It's almost like media. a political. It's almost like a person's political co- mm-hmm. commitment. Mm-hmm. You know where they're where you are. You identify with political positions, and those are meant to be continuous. You know, uh, throughout you know, over time. Right. Whereas identity as like a hipster. You know, it's too bad Pete's not on here because I know he's written and talked about this uh, a lot. In some ways, the identity of a hipster is actually you know about ultimately about change and about the destruction of, of things and it is defined by the sort of dynamism of tastes uh, rather than a sort of loyalty to any one set of ideals. So right. Say. Whereas, I mean, whereas if you're a Star Trek fan, right, yeah, you're living, you are still living in those three movies from the 70s and 80s. Well, right, I mean, that's why, you know, in some ways, like, the most vehement uh, objection to the um, the Star Wars prequels uh, has come from the fan community, right? It's not the it's not Joe Sixpack saying, "Oh, I don't like that." There, Jar Jar Bings. You know, it's the it's the people who are the partisans, right? They're the uh, they're the ra- they're the radicals of of the of the Star Wars party that are are really uh, taking George Lucas to task. You know, know, Ryan, the ethnographer in you would have been just fascinated. By the whole Comic Con phenomenon, I, I don't doubt it. I mean, I, I really wanted to attend, but I, uh, you know, one ethnography as a, uh, uh, at a time, as uh, Evans Pritchard said. Um... <laughs> okay, so so Shirley, you know, you have one year then to finish that damn thesis of yours to get that aside and join us for Comic Con next year. Uh, inshallah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Yeah. It was it was it was an absolutely fascinating experience. I would say and, seeing it kind of as an outsider. Uh, rather, you would agree as well. You know that kind of you know not being in, in quite a member of the. No, Shayna, yeah, Shayna is a much more, I mean, she's an enthusiast of graphic novels and manga and... Was she, was she costumed? No, she wasn't. She wasn't, though I, Though she was with some friends, and one of her friends was wearing a shirt that had a picture of uh, an 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System on it, and said in that NES pixelated font, it said, uh, classically trained, <laughs> which was, you know, I thought was, a clever t-shirt. Uh, no. Well, you'll read about it on the blog, uh, probably all week, the, the fallout, and there's a bunch of stuff, and there will be pictures tomorrow and more, uh, or Monday today, if you're listening to the podcast Monday, and, uh, more pictures later on in the week. And we, we definitely will continue to cover, uh, cover Comic-Con and cover the, the stories that came out of it, which is that Watchmen looks pretty good. Agree. Yeah, and Terminator looks awesome. That's great. Was there any preview for uh, X Men, uh, the X Men Origins uh, Wolverine film no. coming out also in May? No. You know, there were huh. some um, Marvel things, but it was mostly to do with animation, like hmm. afternoon, afternoon sort of animation targeted at children, really, because it's like on Nickelodeon or something or Disney. But uh, of course, the the conference hall was filled up with middle-aged men asking questions about this. Yes. Right. Good stuff. Not to, not to hate on them. My God, I, you know, we're, we're all on our way. (laughs) I, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, if you have questions about anything that you have heard or you have comments, you want to interject your own, Thoughts about Grammy travesties or New York Comic Con or the popular culture or geekdom or what it means to be a fan, you can email podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the podcast voicemail at 20eatlog01. That's 203-285-6401. Leave a message saying your name and where you're calling from. Uh, Go online on the homepage of the site and you can uh, now... Um, leave a comment on this podcast. You can fill out the podcast survey. If you uh, do that on the homepage, I will be very, very grateful to you, and it helps us find out who you are, our listeners, and to better serve you. That's what we're about. We're about you. That's why I came from the damn fire hose this weekend. Yeah, right, exactly. That's why why we go to Comic-Con. You know what I mean? That's why we accept free press passes, to a media event that we would probably be pretty interested in anyway, uh, you know, and wander around for a couple of days neglecting our real life's responsibilities and watching movies uh, and cheering loudly for them in a large room full of uh, many, many strangers. Amen. Uh, Thanks to those of you who have reviewed the show on iTunes. If you can do that, that's another great way you can help us in addition to taking the podcast survey. And as always... Visit our site, www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't does deserve. deserve. We need a better way of doing that. <laughs>